This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today I've got with me writer-director Stephen Fingleton. Hello, Stephen. Hi, Stuart. How are you? I'm doing very well. I'm doing very well. I think my alarm clock beat your alarm clock. Well, in, in the battle of the clocks, um, <laughs> my, my clock is often quite tardy. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've been sending it to the, kind of the clock trainer to try and narrow its odds for the next clock race. Um, but uh, so far it doesn't look like it's going to pull out a winner. Uh, and the bookies are onto it. They've kept its odds nice and long. Um, so if it does turn around, I could earn myself a pretty penny. It's always good to know. Always good to know. Now, we, 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 I've got you on the podcast to talk about your film, The Survivalist. Yes. As a starting point for those that might not have seen it, do you want to give a brief synopsis as to what Survivalist is as a film? Um, the Survivalist is uh, a thriller set in an unspecified time of starvation. And it's about a man living in a farm that's hidden deep in forest, growing his own food, surviving. Um, he's learnt all sorts of techniques for keeping himself alive. He's entirely self-sufficient. Um, and then a woman and her teenage daughter discover his farm. They're desperate for food and for somewhere to stay and he won't give them any shelter or anything to eat. Um, but then they uh, offer him an arrangement, which is, do you want to sleep with the girl? Um, and, you know, he accepts uh, in exchange for food and letting them stay. And what you have is uh, the beginning of a, a very tense three-hander uh, with three characters who don't trust each other in a world where everyone has had to kill to survive. Mm. Yeah, no, it's 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 a, it's a it's a fairly intense movie, and a, and um, what this may seem like a crass comparison, but I th- I always after finishing watching it, I thought uh, it was almost like it could have been like um, on a double bill with say the witch from earlier this year, the uh, even, though, even though it's a period piece. Um, you're not the first person to have said that, and a number of critics made that comparison. Okay. Um, I, I actually know Robert, uh, the director of The Witch, uh, yeah. s- somewhat. Uh, we've we've hung out a few times. Uh, we're working for the same company in the U.S. Now. Really? <laughs> um, so yeah, like we, we both we both had to do a presentation to um, a studio uh, marketing and distribution team. Yeah. 
Um, so, so that was uh, that was cool. Um, but they are very similar in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, although they have very different approaches, I think we could both comfortably watch each other's films and be happy in our own choices. Of course, yeah. I mean, the reason I feel like it's crass is because obviously he is he is what sixteen fifties, and you're some sort of near dystopian future. Uh, well, the the idea is to set it in a very disturbing and anachronistic time. Mm. Uh, in both cases, one of the like, so for example, the stat, disturbing time shift in survivalist is you don't know when it's set. Mm. Uh, you just do not know when it's set. You know, you guess it's the future, mm. and the opening line graph suggests it, it is to some extent. Um, but there's a lot of things that seem like throwbacks, um, and then somebody uses a plastic lighter, so it grounds it a bit more. Mm. Um, with Robert's film, although it's set within a past we're aware of, which is kind of in you know colonial America, where mm. everyone still speaks with an English accent, uh, what's disturbing time-wise about it is that the witches are depicted from the viewpoint of the period in which it is set, not the modern viewpoint. The modern viewpoint in witches is that they are, you know, made up, they're fictitious. Mm. Uh, but it's said from the character's perspective that they're entirely real. Yeah. Um, uh, the witch is real in The Witch. So, if we, if we start at the beginning of this project, you're the writer-director of this, so where where was, uh, or how was, The Survivalist conceived for your mind? Where did you, where did, what was it you felt you had at some point that took you to write a full screenplay about it? What was the, what was the uh, shop jumping-off point for you? Well, there's kind of a multitude of influences, um, I would say. Um, I've been writing a number of screenplays that weren't achievable um, in terms of something I could raise finance for myself um, or shoot myself if required. Yeah. Um, so I was looking for kind of a, um, a low-budget science fiction idea, quite specifically. Um, I had seen Sheen Carruth's primer. And okay. I thought the idea of doing science fiction uh, for no money uh, was a brilliant one because the world is so expansive simply through the act of imagination. Mm. Um, she, like it, it's a time travel movie with no special effects. It's able to show um, time travel through um, a kind of a, a shot, reaction shot of two people looking at themselves. Mm. Like there's no there's no special effects or money involved, and that's just a clever way of showing two people in the same timeline. Uh, and it was just fiendishly clever, which is we don't have any money, but we can be as intelligent and as abstract as we like. Yeah, yeah, no, totally so, agree. So I saw um, a documentary called Collapse, which was uh, directed by a guy called Chris Smith, and it's a fantastic movie. I think it came out in 2005. Mm. Um, you know, might be a bit later, uh, but it was uh, brilliant. It was about peak oil which is a very convincing hypothesis for how industrialized civilization is going to collapse. And um, I imagined what I would do in those circumstances to survive. And I was thinking, well, I'd go to ground, I'd go somewhere people couldn't find me. Um, and then um, I realized you could tell, uh, you know, a post-collapse film, or what might be known as a post-apocalyptic film, more commonly in the press, mm. um, you could tell one of those stories set in a forest so you never had to see the destruction of the cities, which is usually the costliest element yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of it. And so I knew I had like a very exciting framework where everyone who comes out of the forest tells us a bit more about what's going on in the world. And and eventually, after about a year and a half, I think I had done a draft by that stage, Yeah. Um, I conceived the idea of a woman and daughter uh, coming. And, and then I was like, well, okay, great, you've got this kind of 
um, almost satirical look at how the market value for relationships continues um, even in a, in a post-collapse world. So I was able to write something about human sexuality as well on top of the existing things um, about kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, the death of the ecology and so on. Yeah, yeah, because it, it, felt, it, it felt like less of a sacrifice and more of a, more of a this is what I've got to offer. They didn't, the transaction never felt like... Um... Well, if you want to get really deep on it, um, uh, really deep. It's, it's, it's. First of all, it's depicted without judgment. I'm not criticizing the. That's kind of what I was getting at. Yeah. It's not, I'm not criticizing the characters. I'm just. Yeah. This is the way things are, and it's it's shocking to an audience. Is it ever? <laughs> uh, because oh my god, I can't believe this is happening. Yeah. Uh, again, the sort of thing you can't do on a on a bigger budget film, and uh, this the second element was. Um, there's an element of control and power that Milia, who's the young girl, and it mm. draws from the exchange. Um, and she, uh, you know, in some ways, I mean, the way I think Mia has depicted her character is that um, it, it is something her character enjoys, is is being submissive in order to gain control over a man. Um, so that's that's really going down into several layers. Into but, but it's also quite, kind of one of the darkest depictions of coming of age I've seen in a long time because, in a way, if you're tied to your mother, like mm-hmm. she is, and then, obviously, she gets free of her mother, <laughs> as it were, in, in the sense of she has a man in her life, which is kind of the, the step between being from child to adult. Yeah. You know, and it's a fairly dark way of, of showing, you know, there's nothing triumphant about that coming of age in the way, in the you know, given the context it's in and what you put them through. Well, uh, all three stories, because there's the story of him, there's the story of the mother, there's the story of the daughter. Mm. Um, all three of them are coming of age stories in different ways. Um, for him, uh, there is the kind of the rites of passage of becoming a man and ultimately accepting his fate. Mm. Uh, for the mother, there's you know the kind of the, the final steps uh, to try to protect her daughter. You know that's that idea of the, the, you know a mother's last gestures are, are always towards her young. Mm. And for the daughter, it's it's uh, it's it's becoming um, taking on another role herself without giving a spoiler away. Mm. She changes. So, so just let me just let me get this right. And so what you were saying is that you you kind of wrote the story from the survivor's point of view, and later down the line, the the introduction of the the mother-daughter is what sort of coalesced what your idea was together. They weren't there in their early drafts. Is that what you um, I, I had the kind of the setting and the character initially as an idea, and the first okay. draft I wrote was about a father and a daughter, okay. which is a, a very, very different yeah. story. And I did a reading, and the father was a weak character, and the girl had kind of less agency than I wanted. Mm. So I came up with the idea, if I switched the father to a mother... It instantly created a lot more conflict and had a very different dynamic and in some ways they were much more threatening because you've got two women in a world with the, where you know men have guns yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but but they've they've survived so they're very tough I like that no no and and, and, and the fact that you, we only see them come wandering into the survivalist life is that you, we don't unpack any real details about who they were it's just about what they are and what they have to do. Uh, well, uh, the actors knew very detailed background information okay. on what the characters did, which I liked a lot, and it really helped every scene because it would inform their choices. Mm. Um, but 
uh, there's typically scenes in movies where characters just say, you know, like you've got like an action movie and there's the scene where all the characters are holed up in a cabin, you know, overnight somewhere mm. um, while they've been chased by the bad guys and they start talking about their past. Uh, there's many reasons for those scenes, uh, and I am writing, uh, you know, numerous versions of that scene for kind of the, the U.S. script I'm working on at the moment. Mm. Um, but uh, you don't need to do it in low budget. Um, and I, I like the fact that we simply see who these people are through what they do rather than what they say. Why? Just I'm having heard that, that, that theory before. So why, 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 why do you think the necessity is not there for low budget? That seems... I, I kind of agree with you, but I just, I've never heard it sort of stated. Okay, well, I'll you know I'll be fairly fairly straight with you as you know as a filmmaker thing. Yeah. Um, I, I doubt many of your audience will have seen the film, so the first thing I'd do is I'd say go and watch the movie. Yeah. Um, and uh, provided I haven't annoyed you too much in in this interview, <laughs> um, you know, so you're not like all geared up to dislike it, um, you'll be shocked at how poor the distribution in terms of worldwide for the movie was, uh, at how many countries it's not going to get released in, uh, at how little cultural impact the movie has had. Because mm. uh, I intended it to be as impactful a film as I could. It was, but it was rejected from numerous film festivals. Really? Uh, before it got into Tribeca, yeah. It was, it was turned Jeez. out from Sundance and Berlin and South by Southwest. And uh, it's a great film. Mm. And I, I don't have a problem saying that, even though I made it, because um, there's terrific performances. The sound design's fantastic. It looks, you know, very good, thanks to my collaborators. And I could say it with a little bit of distance. I'm not pushing the movie. I'm not looking to boost my own ego or anything like this. Mm. Um, and uh, it really shocked me. For example, in the UK, there was only a single company uh, wanted to distribute it. You know, uh, thankfully it was a company called Bulldog, and they did a good job and stuff like this. But um, you know, I guess I guess the kind of the 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 the, the point they're making is you know um, there's kind of two industries, right? There is the industry of films that make money, and there's the industry of films that don't. Yeah. And when you're in the domain of films that don't, there are other metrics such as. You know, festivals and the award circuit and critical notices. Mm. Okay, um, but uh, the survivalist cost a million pounds or just over, mm. um, and it will only <clears throat> ever make back a fraction of that unless there's suddenly some new revenue stream for the movie. Mm. And I think that's really um, important to to bear in mind, which is the idea that. Um, you know, who's going to invest in a film that's not going to make money? Um, and in order to make a film that makes money, uh, you simply need to look at what you've seen in the cinema. You simply need to look at what's on in your local cinema. You need to look at what's on Sky uh, or what's in the kind of top ten, uh, you know, in your supermarket DVD charts. Because by this stage, um, the, some of the films that are in the top ten are only selling like uh, a few thousand copies. Okay, mm -hmm. um, so we've an industry in freefall. We've people spending a lot less time watching movies, or actually spending money on movies, which is as serious. Uh, TV's getting better, but film is in collapse. So, uh, in order to make something successful, you have to try and make sure it's told in a vernacular uh, and in a way that audiences want uh, to see. So the Revenant, which was considered a very, very bold sort of, uh, you know, uh, example of Hollywood cinema, um, is still at heart 
a story about a guy seeking justice for his son. Yes. You know, uh, who takes time out from his revenge quest to save a woman who's in distress, um, and who, who um, you know, goes on a kind of a story of redemption. Mm-hmm. For all its stylistic boldness and its beauty, it is that story. It is not the, what the original story that The Revenant was based on is about, which is about a guy with no real family connections who manages to overcome a near-death experience and then tracks down the people who left him for dead and doesn't do anything to them. He just takes his gun back. That's the real story. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, a, it's actually been made as a movie before in 1971, I think, hmm. with, uh, with the great Richard Harris in the lead. It was a film called Man in the Wilderness. Okay. It's got this amazing kind of giallo sort of looking trailer online. Um, but what I'm trying to say is, uh, as filmmakers, we begin with the creativity. We begin with the idea. We begin with the things we want to do. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but people who are releasing movies <coughs> or who are professionally financing them, they um, are much more aware of what will work and what will not work. There are a number of decisions my movie made which essentially banished it from having uh, an audience. One of them is that it doesn't have any cast in it. Uh, It it doesn't have any recognisable actors. Um, And that's, you know, very, uh, you know, it's very challenging. Uh, If we had Shia LaBeouf, um, and, I, you know, I know Shia a little. Uh, he was on set a couple of times because he's, he's, he goes out with one of our actors. Mm. Um, uh, you know, it would be a different story. Um, but when you don't, even if they're the right actors for the role, uh, you are then entirely contingent on mechanisms which don't really exist. Probably the best example of a film with no cast uh, recently was The Witch. Mm. Uh, but The Witch was a horror movie. And The Witch, the film, uh, hews very, very, very closely to all the tropes of a horror movie. As in everything that will happen in a horror movie, it's a last girl standing movie. Um, with, with obviously a lot of subversion in the fact it's applying this to, you know, um, you know, very controversial subject. So that's I was going to say, and also, it, 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 did, it did enough to make people that wouldn't admit to liking horror try and argue that The Witch isn't a horror film. Because they, um, because they found themselves enjoying it. You're thinking, it's all right to enjoy a horror film. I, I, I think, um, you know, anyone who's still making that argument about, you know, horror isn't a real genre, uh, you know, they're, they're obviously very tired because, you know, uh, <laughs> Stanley Kubrick did The Shining. He was no, no, no. He went to changes, which is probably Robert's major influence on the film, yeah, stylistically, yeah. In, terms of, in terms of The Shining's another film. Um, about kind of the uh, the death of the Native Americans because I think what the witch is really about because the Native Americans never really f- uh, feature and it is is the kind of the hidden Holocaust behind America's lineage. Um, so I, look, I, I'm bringing this up because uh, there are people online who have just said this is the worst movie ever. This is the worst movie I've ever seen, and they've done extended rants about it. What and the survivalist? So, yeah. Jesus and, Christ! And um, the, the, the thing, and all the reasons is are all the reasons that an audience finds it interesting. As in, oh, there's no music. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, there's very little dialogue. Um, oh, you know, there's there's no explanation for what's going on. Um, and so, you know, it's, some people have hated that, and they've they've said they've you know they've they've gone online about that. When you make a film which has to make money, you have much less room for alienating 
uh, portions of your audience. I see what it's, you're saying. Yeah. It's, sim- it's simply not enough to get 60% of your people behind it mm. because if you depend on 80% because you need the word of mouth, okay? And you can do something like The Revenant where you can mainstream the story a lot more and people will... St- you, you won't lose any of the original audience who really liked it. You'll just gain more. I guess I guess the only one that's, that, that's close to achieving that is somebody, I guess, like Nicholas Wine and Refn, isn't he? He, is, oh, he has the star value, so I admit... Part of the package is he's, he's, he's getting right, but he is definitely getting he's splitting people's opinion, isn't he? There's there's a kind of adamant I hate this, adamant I love this. There's never not many of his recent films. People have said, oh, they're all right. Uh, well, uh, you know he's he's Danish, and von Trier is the master of the polarizing film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But um, both Raven and um, uh, you know, Anne von Trier work with major actors. No, yeah, I was going to uh, say that's the part know, of the equation that they get. Yeah, yeah, and like so they're like Dogtooth is is probably the film, the reason a lot of people you know know von Trier. Um, you know, obviously a, a cinema audience has known him for for a decade mm. before then. But uh, Rafin as well, he did a, he did a Hollywood thriller with Ryan Gosling, um, which was Drive, and mm. it was a very straight script, and he had a very subversive take on it. Um, I really like the script actually. So, um, you know, when you actually really analyse where people are coming from, they establish themselves as creatives, um, you know, in a, in, a, in a major way with very distinctive work. Mm. Um, so they were able to brand themselves for it. My point is this when, when I had cinema chains uh, screening The Survivalist once a day at, say, either 11.30 in the morning or 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah. Um, during during school term, uh, during school break, sorry, so uh, it was term break and people are minding their kids, and it, they only showed it for a week. And in some of these cinemas, they were only showing it in these terrible matinee slots for this kind of hard eighteen thriller. Mm. Um, Picture House, for example, clearly didn't care about what I thought of what they did in terms of programming it like that. Mm. Uh, I'm sure they would care if it was Nicholas Rafin in the sense that he could pick up the phone and he could say, this isn't right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and stuff like this. Um, I had absolutely no way to influence their decision-making, and um, so the numbers for the survivors when it came out were pretty uh, were pretty bad for the cinema. Um, mm. I think we were probably 45th in the whole country. You know, for a film, which yeah, was yeah. Um, startlingly like uh, the idea of not being in the top ten for me was well, that's a little disappointing. Uh, but then when you actually do a release and you're like, you're like, you're probably like forty fourth in the country behind like ten Hindi movies. Yeah, I mean, uh, this is this is a, the, you're, you're you're telling like an extreme version of the tale I get a lot on on the podcast from from filmmakers who are outside. Obviously, everyone I'm speaking to is outside the studio system. Yeah. So. At other extremes is you then see what people do that's alternative to obviously the expectations that someone's going to give a shit. <laughs> so the biggest example is, is uh, there was a documentary about Nottingham Forest Football Club that mm-hmm. a guy called Johnny Owen did. And he, his opening night was a screening at the city ground in Nottingham. So yeah. in, one, in one viewing, he got 11,000 people, which although he's not obviously competing with Marvel, in that top 10 of films shown that week, that one screening, being an event, made a massive difference to how that film hit the news. Because well, its viewing figures were big, you know. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a fantastic example. Um, 
but that's that's where the film matches the audience. Mm. You can do events around. I think when you're doing, you're at this kind of level. Of, you almost have to make every screening an event. Like mm. you have to do a Q and A and stuff like this. And I, you know, I just don't have the time to go around the country. I mean, I, I did as many Q and As as I could in like mm. kind of two weeks because I wanted to support support the distributor mm. uh, in the release. I want them to make money. Um, but uh, you, you, you know, even then, when you really work it out, like if I was getting paid, um, I don't know, fifty quid to show up to do a talk for something, it's still not worth my time because you know, obviously, I'm working on much bigger projects. But fifty quid is probably the break-even point for a lot of screenings, if you factor in all the different costs, you know, in terms of of the fee. So, it's not a sustainable model. Uh, if you're a small movie, you might be able to do that. But the, the kind of thing I'm uh, the kind of thing I'm, I'm getting to is, 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 is deeper. A picture house um, wouldn't even let me do Q&As for the film. Oh, right. Wow. Yeah, which is really astonishing. Um, and I... Uh, and, and, and surprising. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, and it was, you know, I mean, there was a lot of, like, resistance to the movie. I thought that was their bread and butter. Like, the idea of event cinema, you know, I thought that was... Well, what's important to think about... Uh, say say a chain like Picture House is, uh, they <coughs> are owned by a major European company. Uh, you know, I think is it, is it, you know that that also owns Cineworld. Mm. Cineworld have terrible cinemas in a lot of places. Um, uh, like for example, uh, Haymarket in London, they don't even turn off the lights during screenings. Um, I had a screening of Survivalist f- for the London Film Festival. There. Um, so you've these you've the same company owning film. Um, cinema chains with apparently very different ethoses. Okay, mm. but the reality is, um, my argument would be, is that Picture House do not, and this is might be shocking, they do not actually care about audiences, in the sense that they care about being seen to care. They care about creating the impression of being like the local friendly cinema. Um, uh, but uh, they're they're about turnover. They are about. Um, you know, uh, you know, getting an increasingly resistant, you know, population to come to the cinema. Okay, and what they're not about doing is about expanding their audience's horizons. Okay, and it's not they don't see it as their job to support local filmmakers, but they recognise that their audiences very often would care about supporting local filmmakers. So they find a variety of ways of organizing events to give the appearance of of caring. Okay. But I think but I think it's an, it's 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 slightly uh, problematic in the sense that we can refer to pictures because they seem to be at that level because they were obviously before they were bought out they were that cinema chain but actually distribution in this country is hampered more so by just simply the presence of the studios owning our cinemas in some sense or another you know you think Warner Brothers I, and, and therefore, they're not going to want to... Ex- I mean, the, the idea of expanding an audience's horizons is like saying... is like inviting competition, isn't it? You know, in, in a very business, hard business sense. Well, I, I'm looking at something... Because I shared your viewpoint, and I was like, uh, the studios own a lot of the cinemas, effectively, in, in Europe, which they're banned from doing in America. Mm. And I used to think, oh, yeah, we, we, we can't really control our industry in, in that regard. Um, it, but 
I'm, I'm really going into Picture House. It's like criticizing The Guardian, which is, oh, it's not fashionable to do because The Guardian's like the left wing paper or whatever. No, I, I uh, criticize that. You're honest. Yeah, yeah, but, you, but, you know, but they're. But they're <laughs> I know what you said, yeah. I was, I, was just, I was just trying to sort yeah. of introduce, sort of sense that there is, there is, there is a macro problem. But no, go on, please. I wasn't, I wasn't um, trying to. Well, well, well this, this is the thing. I would much rather be in the studio system because it's clear cut. And you know you know you know what you're working with, as opposed to haggling around for deals um, with with these companies. Now, I, I'm giving the picture house example very specifically. And look, I you know uh, I, I go to the picture house. I like the cinemas, um, uh, you know, and you know the Ritzy in Brixton was my cinema for many years, and I've screened at local short film competitions uh, in in the Ritzy. I, I won the Centenary Prize at the, at the Ritzy mm. um, for screening there. Those were events organised by the staff. And they weren't events organised by the company, and just organised the division between these two. Got you, got you. Um, the the staff really wanted to promote uh, survivalist in, in various cinemas in Liverpool, for example, um, but they were banned by uh, the company from hosting me for Q and A. Now I can go into reasons for why that is. But I'm just trying to rearticulate all your theories about well, if I make a really great, exciting. Uh, British or Irish film, um, which has amazing reviews, which has like say five star review, you know reviews, uh, you know, and four star film of the week reviews from like the major publications like the Financial Times, the Guardian, mm. here's Mark Kermit's film of the week was promoted all this. You would expect let's 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 give it an evening slot somewhere in the north. Well, you'd, you'd, expect, <laughs> you'd expect some momentum to come from that. Yeah, yeah, but there, there's none, and not only that. Uh, they have an active disinterest in doing that because they um, they don't want to promote something they've passed on. So uh, you know, it, it's it, what what Picture House offered me was they said we will do one screening in the afternoon of your film. Um, they came to me proactively and said we've got something called Discover Tuesdays. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, I didn't even reply. I just got my my, my you know just. You know, agent. You know, my distributors too. But the uh, my, my, my point is, I was so many uh, miles away from being a film that really mattered to them. Mm. Um, and e- even even in the week of our release, right, we'd been nominated for a BAFTA, mm. and the BAFTAs were the week of the release. Okay, which you would have thought would have been like a good coverage draw or or, or, or justification. And again, there was no. There's no support. So um, this is this is the kind of shocking bit. Um, why did we get such really terrible slots, and why uh, you know were Q and A's refused? Um, you know, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, for, for the for the screens. And my opinion is that perhaps I don't. I'm not. This isn't about any particular chain. Mm. Okay, but my opinion is that some people may have wanted the film to have a, a worse per screen average as in how much money it made per screen, so they could go to the BFI and said, the film did terribly, we're not sticking on the second week, because the BFI sponsored the movie. The BFI give a lot of money to, uh, uh, you know, cinemas, effectively, uh, for for screening movies mm. uh, through their P&A fund. And so, although technically we were given a screening day, it was designed not to make any money. So what I'm saying is this goes far further than you expected, which is it's not just that you're not in the studio system. It's not just that uh, you're in an indie system and they're not going to support you. It's that you may be actively uh, not supported, okay? mm. and your, your film may be actively hurt 
by the actions of of, of, of of cinema chains and nobody nobody cares if you've made a great film nobody cares if you're going to be uh, a huge filmmaker you know in future uh, it's there's this very simple threshold can we ignore this movie or not and the survivalist for cinemas basically fell into that yes we can mm. and that's that's all they needed to know because yep great that, we can and, that, and sadly that's you know I mean I've I've, I've I've not released a film as yet, but I've worked in I've worked in band management before, and signed to major labels, and that's that's the ethos. We back we back what we think is going to be successful, and we don't back what we don't think will be successful. And the idea of making something successful by what we back is not the way we look at the equation. <laughs> right. it, it, yeah, exactly. Look, nobody nobody owes you anything. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, um, I, I, nobody owes you anything in this world, and I, I completely understand many of their perspective. But um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I I don't look at a picture house again. I'll never look at the game in the same way. Which is, um, uh, which is, you know, it, oh, it's 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 the, the the pro film thing is purely branding. Mm. And I'm sure if I talked. To like some of the senior people at Picture House, they would be very offended by the notion uh, of, of that. But that's because they're working within an institution, mm. and um, and that's that's all there is. That's all there is to it. So uh, it was kind of an existential thing for me, which is it's 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 literally impossible to uh, profitably launch uh, an independent British film uh, in the cinemas here unless you're a one in a hundred movie, or if you are like I'm not even talking about it being a hit. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about making the money back for a cinema or enough of its money back for a cinema release that's not a disaster. The chances of not being a disaster in a cinema release are something like 99 out of 100 for, for an indie film. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's kind of asking the question, well, why are we doing this? And so I've taken a very different turn with my next project, which is within the studio system effectively, uh, because uh, I want to make films for audiences. And I'm not making films... Um, for kind of select audiences um, who've heard of the movie for a podcast, you know, <laughs> that's, that's 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 I didn't get into films to have the same viewership as a gallery. You know, no, I, I understand, but can I? Can, uh, it's um, one thing. One question I want to ask because I think you, you've kind of you've kind of knocked me for six a bit, which um, I don't mind at all. It's uh, but but I like I like to talk about the cinema release because I, I'm just no, no, like, it's important. Like, I think I think it's, it's important. It's, what I like to say is begin with the end in mind because you might think the end is making the movie and if you're just making a calling card and you don't expect it to be seen anywhere that's fine but you really need to have a deeply realistic expectation of what the film will do so every decision you make earlier on is influenced by that so no, that's what no, I want to focus on that yeah. no, I, I had, I had um, a guy who, does, um, who helps with social media marketing for films and he did a session up in Edinburgh last year and one of the things he was astounded by, because obviously he comes from marketing, not from film, although he wants to, he, he's working within the film industry, as it were, he is astounded by people's um, lack of even questioning who the audience is, not, never mind how you reach them. You know, so, so you're right, there are, there are people that want to make that first feature film to show they can do a car chase scene, and as long as they can show that, then that's what will get them the next gig. And that's um, fine. But and that, and that's you, fine. But if you want to, like you said, you want to make a good film and want to be seen, the the the, the how you get seen is the question you want to be trying to be yeah. answering in that and, process. Uh, but ironically, if you just set out to make a calling card movie, 
uh, you won't be given another chance because people will smell it out as being something you didn't believe in. So you're trying to believe in something that will only ever really be seen by festivals. Uh, and so it's almost you have to draw. You, the Europeans are very relaxed about their movies only being seen in festivals, uh, which but I'm but I'm but I'm less so because if you if you want to make commercial cinema, and I wanted to make basically, I said the audience for my movie was Drive. Um, I said I want to make a genre offering for an art house audience, as in something that's very entertaining mm. but has met much of the clothing of an art house movie. Um, and which, which you did. Uh, yeah, but nobody cares, and no, nobody's particularly particularly seen it. And uh, you know, had I, you know, and, and moreover, it was very difficult getting any level of support for it um, from you know established you know film companies or uh, you know or, or, or funders with a huge amount of backing. Because when the script was um, went out, it went on to something called Hollywood's blacklist. Mm. Which is the year's best unmade scripts? And it was like halfway up there. It was like it was ranked alongside Transcendence, which was made into a movie with Johnny Depp, um, and uh, although it's a better film, obviously. Um, and uh, <laughs> uh, as as much as I like Mr. Mr. Uh, the the director, who's a fantastic uh, cinematographer, um, the uh, you know and top the UK Brit list, and my short films were successful. Uh, SLR, for example. Uh, got you know three hundred thousand views within a week of going online, you know, and it was shortlisted for an Oscar. Mm. Uh, so there was a whole range of success, and there was just palpable disinterest. And so that surprised me. But I thought, well, once the movie's out there and people have seen it, and the industry, I'm you know, the, you know, the door is going to be kicked in. People wanting uh, to work with me, and it hasn't been the case. So it made me realise actually a lot of people in the British film industry just don't do their jobs. Um, or they think that you'll you'll end up coming to them with projects, um, and it's just it's just nonsensical. It's not going to happen. Well, I must admit. I mean, I think I think that whole that phrase British film industry can be can seem to be magnifying something that isn't quite there. Um, I think well, why, why aren't they, why aren't they in America? Anyone you're talking to, you have to ask that question. No, no, if no, no. no. If, I, I, if you're I, serious I, about making movies. Why isn't that person opposite you promising to help you get it made? Why aren't they at the centre of where the industry is? I'd seen I was at what a producer's masterclass at BAFTA, and oh, the, that was with uh, was with oh, they haven't regular time. They haven't quite regular. Uh, uh, was, was that uh, Tanya Sagatian? No, no, it wasn't that one. No. Uh, it was a couple. Uh, of years, it was a couple of years ago now, but it was it was just more the point that. The point that was raised was that there was a name producer who actually had years in Hollywood under their belt, but now was based in, in Britain. And the view was, if I don't get BFI or BBC Film or Film 4, then I can't make a movie. And you're like thinking, is that it? Yeah, that's, that's completely true. We have which the is, same which, equation. Which is, which is kind of a... And that's what I'm just going back to your point about what, when people say the British film industry. You know, it's sort of... the British As much as... Whereas in the, Euro the European model, all the, all the sort of catalyst support, as it were, from government and quasi-government funds is to help get films made um, and, and not be trying to seem to be competing with Hollywood. Whereas we have a kind of schizophrenic view, which is, I think this is just, this is my, my observations as I've seen it, is that we have this schizophrenic observation that, that we, want to, we want to go down the red carpet and win awards, but we also want to make commercially savvy movies that that um, that compete in Hollywood, and that's kind of, and that strikes strikes me as the latter is 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 the thing that you don't try and do with government funding because 
there are investors to make to invest in films that are going to compete in Hollywood. I would have thought. Um, I mean, I, uh, I have a slightly different perspective in certain regards. As my agent likes to say, some some of my clients make films that will make over 100 million. Others make movies that are going to compete for Oscars. Mm. What I say to them is, why can't you do both? Mm. Um, and it's a really cool philosophy, and I, I, I like it a lot. Um, look, the, B, the BFI backs a lot of filmmakers that their movies aren't going to make any money, mm. but they, they don't do that with all of it. You know, they'll they'll put money into developing Mike Bassett, Football Manager, the sequel, okay? Mm. Um, and they will also back something like um, The Survivalist. If they make films which consistently don't find an audience, the BFI as an institution will be under threat from the Tory government. Mm. Um, so they, they have to back, you know, stuff that's going to be seen. But there's a deeper point here. Okay, so let's say they, they, they backed me on The Survivalist and I made a much more esoteric version of it, much stranger version. Um, you know, what's my next movie? Do I go back to the BFI? I mean, and then you're in, then you're into kind of Ken Loach territory. Ken Loach applies for money; he gets money for his movies, right? BBC mm. Films, BFI. Sometimes he makes a fantastic film. Sometimes he makes a film that's merely great. Okay, that's kind of his range, you know, yeah, of yeah. stuff. And and the, it's always the same movie. Um, so he is for the fabulous filming. So, but that's like there's like a Ken Loach slot for the funding. So if we get into the stage where the only way Ken can get his movies made is with that sort of support, then that means new filmmakers don't get it. Now, I think, for example, the fund should be focused on new filmmakers, but I don't think, uh, but I think attempting to be commercial is, is, is essential because you have no other metric for working out who's going to see, see your movie. And it can be commercial in its own terms. It can be something like um, Tom McCarthy's Remainder. I have no idea what the expected numbers for that are. Um, you know, but it's you know it's just very clear. As in, we want ten thousand people to see it. That you, know, you can yeah, say yeah, no, it's, it's, it's kind of like what the the, uh, the the band the fall. You know, fifty thousand fall fans can't be wrong. It's well, well, of... well, let me let me get to the a better company would be something like Film Four. Yeah, Film Four uh, have a very commercial remit. Certainly, they did have under David Cosby. Mm. Um, and they, you know, for example, I, I always saw the Survivalists as a Film Four movie. And if you watch the film, you'll see, yep, this is exactly what they would have made. But it's not, it's not the sort of film the film for of today would make, unless I was a female director, I would say. Uh, that would probably be the exception. You've probably a little more leeway uh, as a female director in terms of your choices of subject uh, than, as a, than as a male filmmaker, which is cool. Um, although then that leads to female filmmakers being pigeonholed as kind of, oh, they're always making our house movies that people don't want to see. Uh, well, actually, no, it's because... Uh, you know, they no was said less often to them of their project. Mm. Um, uh, you know, and there are plenty of male filmmakers who would have made stuff as as, as, as strange as that. So, but, and then the, and then the female director gets the blame for making something that nobody nobody goes to see. Uh, that's kind of like a classic conundrum you have for very talented female directors in, in Britain, uh, which they're, they're um, you know is, is is the whole of the decision isn't seen in in how uh, you know they're evaluated for what they've made. So. Uh, but basically, the interesting conundrum for Film 4 was this. I, I think Film 4 should have made it, okay? And I've made my views clear to Film 4. Um, I don't think Film 4 even officially rejected the movie in terms of from funding. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, now Film 4, you know, I would like, you know, I'd like to do something with Film 4 and have a number of kind of smaller films. But if I go straight into the, the Hollywood kind of model, 
then I then I don't get to work with Film Four. So you have a very weird situation where a fabulous company with tremendous pedigree and tremendous smarts like Film Four doesn't necessarily work with somebody on their first movie, uh, and then they don't get a chance on the second. <laughs> Uh, because Hollywood basically, we're not going to invest in those first movies, but we'll find the filmmakers we want to work with and then mm. just work with them on their, on their next one. And I think that's a really big problem for the British, um, for the British and Irish film industries, which is by not taking up these bets, they are not establishing a relationship with filmmakers who, once they've made that, then have no real loyalty. To anyone in the, in, do you not? Do, I mean, this sounds hard to give it. I mean, you've, you've you've covered quite a lot of ground in sort of the macro and the, and the micro politics of making a film, certainly in, in Britain and, and Ireland. Do you not think though that one of our, one of our biggest problems, regardless of funding, what politics, what who's in government, is as we share a language with with our American co- cousins, our products can always be directly compared to it and our product is always directly competing with it whereas if you make a French speaking or a German speaking or a Korean speaking just by that decision alone you've already differentiated it for your domestic market and you can make the film that only needs 10,000 people to see it to return on its investment you know that we, we don't have we, the, the way that films are distributed in this country the way that the consumers see them is that all films are in the round and then there's international movies so British and American films are the same, and then you've got world cinema, and that's obviously a very distinct thing. And I, I, think, I, I, think that's yeah. a big, I think that's a big problem for anybody trying to be any kind of... Um, trying to have any kind of voice in cinema, and you, 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 you sort of weave through that... Um, the, 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 what it means to be a female or male filmmaker and what they're expected or not expected to do, as opposed to what they might want to do, <laughs> you know. Well, um, I... I saw uh, an executive at Universal, and I said, I think my movie would have done better had it been in in French. Mm. And they said, yeah, we completely agree. So that is true. true. We can't change the language we all speak. But but I do think that's an... I do find that an undying problem, because I'll... And this this is going to sound patronising, and it's not meant to, but, you know, it's the idea that for for a lot of film audiences, if you're going to compare what you got as an experience from watching Avengers Ensemble and what you might get if you sit down and watch The Survivalist, then you're not mm-hmm. comparing like with like, are you? Or would you, would you think that you are as the filmmaker um, who made they're, it? They're, they're completely different. I mean, I think you can compare the experience of watching The Revenant uh, because, um, uh, you know, I, I think The Survivalist is probably a better movie than The Revenant, mm. um, although they're difficult to compare, but they're similar in a lot of ways. But I, I, what it does have certainly is a better story. Mm. Um, you know, it mightn't have the, the tremendous spectacle and Leonardo DiCaprio, but it's got actors you don't recognise who you completely believe as people. With, when you watch The Revenant, you do see Leo in those sort of roles as a star mm. doing incredible things. Whereas you watch my movie, you forget they're actors. What you know? can, and this, is, this might this might have been like an easy decision you made, but one of the one of the cleverest things I thought you did, given where you started this conversation about making a film on, on a budget you could raise is that timeline you do with the, the birth of civilization, the discovery of oil yeah. and then oil f- and all done as a line graph so well, again, uh, well again we don't was, have the, mo- the money was, to show was that on the page though from the get go was that something yeah, you it was, it was on the page, funnily enough it was a film 4 note film 4 said we want an explanation for why the worlds came to being and we were with an executive called Catherine Butler um, yeah well, I don't know who's ever seen the movie. Um, she hasn't given any of the screens. 
Um, she um, said, oh, I'd like to know why the worlds came about this way. Mm. And so I came up with this very visual way of depicting it, which you could do for very little money. Mm. No, that was very and, clever. Uh, you know, so we can't do the Hollywood thing. We can't do the scale thing you would see from another perspective. But what I, um, uh, but the challenge was then was then getting somebody to, to do that. Uh, the company hadn't allocated enough money to to get a proper professional to do it. So there were lots of people coming up with very terrible ways of doing the line graph. We had some tests done by different people, mm. not all of which look really bad. Uh, so I had to learn how to use um, a 3D software package, <laughs> had to learn how to use CGI, and had to design the graph myself, which took several months. Bloody hell. Yeah. And that, I mean, one of, one of the key things about um, being able to immerse yourself and enjoy the film is the continuous sort of tone that you manage to keep throughout. From the moment we meet him on his own to the point when the, the mother and daughter come into his life is that you you don't, you, you never drop the ball at all. It always, I always felt on edge. I always felt deeply unsettled. And I was never quite sure where you were going to go with it. Yet you've only got three people to play with. How, how, how did you manage that? Is that to do with what you were mentioning earlier about having a good idea of where all these characters come from? So when you place them in this this... This, this moment, you could, you could draw on whatever history they had with each other and also, I guess, the mystery between the mother-daughter and the survivalist. Well, there's a limited number of possibilities with three characters. Mm. So if you work out the most extreme things that can happen with those three characters, they all pretty much do happen. Mm. Um, and it's a journey to the interior. Uh, but it's based on the logic of the situation, which is um, the film falls apart completely if you don't believe you take them in. And he's a guy who's done anything to survive. And so every kind of step of negotiating what happens after that is very logical um, and makes sense uh, or makes sense emotionally. Um, and, and, and that's really where it kind of comes, it kind of comes from uh, in, terms of, in terms of approach. It's just, it's just really good writing, which is what would happen next, what would happen next, what would happen next. But, 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 you, I think, but also you don't, you don't rely on dialogue, do you? I mean, we, we, they, they, because this is a time where clearly we're not, we're not having a great, a great time of it, people aren't effusive or anything, and certainly not in the situation you present us with. So, so that, that, that drama and that tension and that tone is drawn out a lot through through action rather than the three people, you know, having an argument for want of a better expression. Well, we, uh, you know, had very little dialogue in the script. And then mm. we took a lot of that dialogue out yeah. um, in rehearsal. Uh, and then we took more of that dialogue out on set. Okay. And then, and then we took more of that dialogue out in the edit. Gee whiz. So, uh, which is another reason it moves very, very, very quickly. We were always finding the shortest, most surprising ways forward in the story. Mm. So, like, um, on some occasions, we take out 10 minutes of the movie and with a jump cut. You know, uh, which, like, for example, uh, the shaving scene. Yeah. Uh, after the shaving scene, uh, we, we cut to the three of them having dinner. Yeah. Uh, there's a 10-minute cut there. Okay. There's a 10-minute ten, ten cut, which is we sh there was an initiation ceremony into the farm we did. Yeah. And we found we could just do the straight cut. And it worked, it worked a lot better. It was something my editor discovered, because uh, my editor is always looking at this. We had a whole other opening to the movie after the line graph. Yeah. We had a whole other character that we shot. I once, uh, I once listened to an interview with the guy, that I forgot his name now, so Stephen, I forget his name, who wrote Syriana. Yeah. And he was talking about what makes good story, and he referred back to Tolstoy. And he said it was a. He said good storytelling is in the transitions. So, which yeah. I guess is I guess is kind of what the cuts are, aren't they, in cinema? I suppose. 
Uh, yes. Uh, well, I, I've always felt that, which is um, for for a lot of reasons. Working with my editor Mark many years ago, yeah, the kind of a student movie I, I was doing. Uh, he, I, I realized the power of editing in terms of moving from one scene to the next. Mm. But you could tell so much of your story and how you transition, mm. uh, you know, in something. So uh, I think it's really incredibly important uh, what you. Uh, you know what you do because the whole purpose of um, you know a cut is to tell the audience something okay so you know uh, in the survivalists we've seen where a character is getting shaved mm. and then it cuts to the three characters having dinner now what's the relationship between the shaving and the dinner um, there doesn't seem to be any but what it's telling us is they uh, you know, something's happened in between, and they are now all together. Uh, uh, you know, in a very, very different state. Yeah, I, I, so, I, I, I mean, but my thoughts, my thoughts were, you've you've just given us a high example of how to gain trust, and you've shown me the result of if trust has been achieved. Yeah, of, which is which is if she can do this with him. Yeah, it's it's only a matter of time before yeah. everything else, which is. So uh, what, what's the soonest point at which you can convey the basic information to the audience yeah. and, then, and then how can you get out of it? Um, and the kind of exception to that is where you need to emotionally ground a scene where people need to feel the pain of a scene. So a good example is, uh, is, is like a torture sequence in a movie mm. because there's kind of two approaches. One is showing the character being led in to the room and then you see them later and they're kind of broken. Mm. Typically, though, that happens with characters who aren't the protagonist, okay? It happens with secondary characters or characters who will no longer be very involved in the story because they're so damaged by that experience. Mm. Um, you find, as a writer, as a filmmaker, you need to stay in the room with them uh, as they're being tortured because we, the audience needs to share their ordeal. And the audience knows what's going to happen. The audience knows, you know, either they will yield or they will not yield. And oh, you're, you're saying if it's the protagonist, we need to see the protagonist be tortured. If it's maybe not, we can get away with the notion of filling the blanks in of what the torture was and see the end result. Um, I, I'm saying sometimes we need to see scenes even though we, we know the, what the outcome is going to oh, be. Oh, I see, I see. Sorry, sorry. Uh, because, uh, and I'm saying that our reasons for needing to know are influenced by whether it's the protagonist or, or not. Got There's you, got no you, hard got and fast rules. Got you, got you, got you. Um, so I, I, think, I think one of the, uh, you know, like... Uh, sometimes you need to see it. A great example of, of somebody who's, who's gone against the grain was the Coen brothers who did No Country for Old Men. And they kill a major character off, um, off screen. Um, and I'm not going to say which character for people who haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's deeply dissatisfying and is a deep flaw in the material. And it is, it is in the book, but it's the point at which the movie ceases to be awesome. Yeah. You know, and it's just you, know, you you can't do that. You can't do that. And and and, and what's, it's particularly hard by the fact that you then see a shot of that character being dead, mm. but it's not clear it's that character because the shot isn't clear enough. And you already have an audience who don't want to accept what's just happened. Yeah. So um, you know you have to bear bear in mind that. So there there are exceptions to moving forward as quickly as possible. Although generally, when you come up with reasons why you shouldn't and why oh we need to show this. It's usually an excuse for you not to cut it. So uh, most of the time, you should take it out and then find out if it's missing. In the um, in the bonus material that comes with the film, the making of stuff, you you talk about the short film sort of 
version proof of concept that you made. And in it, I think I think I seem to remember you describing it as by doing that, you got what would be the equivalent of the first week of shooting out the, under your belt, as it were, without having it to be the first week of shooting a feature film. Can you can you unpack that as a sort of what that get what benefits that gave you when you did come to shoot the film? Well, essentially, the BFI. I, I don't think we're confident in my abilities as a filmmaker uh, mm-hmm. to make a uh, survivalist, or they weren't happy with the package we were presenting them. Right. In terms of um, the, you know, production company, the producers, uh, the HUDs, for whatever reason, when we went for funding, we were rejected, mm-hmm. and they said, "But we will give you money to make like a teaser." Uh, to show us how you would shoot this world. Um, I just made SLR with them specifically just to demonstrate what I was like as a director. And it didn't get them over the line to, um, uh, you know, from, from the base of that short to survivalist. Mm. So uh, I, I proposed making Magpie, which was a prequel set within the world where we cast another actor um, as, as somebody who's not in the main film and tell his story and tell how he comes into contact with the women from the feature yeah. and has, has a sticky end. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, because I wanted to tell something that we could also, like, stick online uh, as a way of selling the movie. Now, in the end, we couldn't really use it for promotional purposes because um, um, we recast the actors. Martin was recast as the lead character in Survivalist, um, you know, instead of uh, being the uh, the guy who meets the sticky end in Magpie. Mm. And we also had Olivia Williams in Magpie, and, sh- and she left the project. Um, so, you know, we recast her in the film as well. Um, <clears throat> but uh, that was shot in February 2014, and I was on set shooting Survivalist by June. Okay. So it was a very fast turnaround. So we did the post-production and the screening of all that and moved very, very, very quickly on. And the reason why things happened very, very quickly was I was able to cast Martin off the back of that. I had no idea I was going to cast Martin when I was doing Magpie. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but he was so good in it. I was just like, I've got to to work with him because I know I'll make a good film. And I've been waiting like 18 months uh, for for big-name actors to not read my script. So let's let's just get on with making an actual film because it's taking way too long. Um, so what happened was uh, we, uh, you know, it was I got a chance to work with who would be my eventual cinematographer. I got a chance to work with the locations. I got a chance to work with my sound designer on my editor. So we were able to just work out some of the language techniques uh, we would um, we would use, and uh, you know that was very very useful. And it was useful uh, in in a lot of different ways. But against that, um, my my for example on the cinematography side. It wasn't that useful because um, my uh, cinematographer took a very different approach to the main film, mm. which uh, you know created some challenges for me on set, and I had to negotiate a lot with him to move back to what we did with the short, uh, you know, and we shot with a different camera, um, you know, as well, which isn't helpful because then I didn't really know the capabilities of the new camera we were shooting on, and the mm. new camera we were shooting on was a lot bigger than the one we shot the short with, so a lot of my plans were immediately different. Um, but to be able to shoot something within the world in which your story is set, and with the cast, and with the location, um, is just a way of making a lot of uh, mistakes early or successes early. So one thing I learned, for example, if you watch Magpie, is the clothing breakdown isn't very good, as in it doesn't look like people have been out in the wild for years. Okay. So I, so I, knew, I knew we had... To, spend a lot more time doing that. Something your costume people will always do is they, they won't break down the costumes. 
they will say, oh, it's that's like so broken down, that's far more broken down than it would be in real life. You've got to do breaking down of costumes like 10 times more um, than it happens in real life for it to show up on camera. So that was something we got out of it. Another big thing we got out of it was I realised the, the actors would all have to lose a lot of weight, uh, a, a lot of time in advance, because they all look very healthy um, in, in Magpie. So you should watch, watch Martin and Magpie. Um, if you get the DVD or Blu-ray or yeah. the the iTunes package, and I, have, uh, I didn't know I didn't notice the weight difference. I didn't. You, I, I, well, I'll, you know, I'll, uh, I'll go back now. Now, said, now I wasn't like because I wasn't looking for it. I didn't give it. A, he, he looks very different. No, no, no. He does, but it just I didn't think of it be just obviously you're thinking in terms of how it looks and what you're trying to convey, and then you're going right. Okay, you're going to have to lose some weight for this to look real, which is what you're seeing in my project. Like, I know, yeah. Yeah, so it's um, there's stuff like that you learn, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but what I'm trying to say is, I could have looked at what the BFI did in in two ways. One is a very negative way. Mm. One is a very critical way, um, and is taking it personally, and so mm. on. Whereas they're a company with a really tough job who have to reject most people who come through the door, um, and you know uh, they they're spending the public's money. They they're trying to do it as best as they can. They mm. honestly are. They really honestly are. If you think about nothing else but the BFI, but that, they're trying as hard as they can. Oh no, without a doubt. Because I mean, if if you go to them, <coughs> if you go to them for advice, so I, you're not going for asking for money, they they fall over themselves to give you advice because they can give that. That's kind of nobody's nobody's monitoring or saying you're you're, you're spending money unwisely because obviously they can share their experience, they can share your understanding. You can take that away because you may not be appreciate what they know as experts. Yeah. Like, giving like, out money is a very different thing. Well, I, I never got any money from the UK Film Council. And I, I remember when the UK Film Council was shut down, uh, there was a lot of indie filmmakers who were kind of quite smug. And they were like, well, you know, they never give me any money. And I, I've got to know uh, the people who are running the Film Council very well since. Okay. In fact, like um, the person who ran it, uh, the person who ran the development fund, the person who ran the production fund, I've I've worked with as producers. So uh, you know, I've I, I get to know them very well, and they worked so hard on what they were doing, and yet we had this image of them as these very remote organisation, um, and it's just not helpful. So the negative wave there's all these negative reasons why, and and there were a lot of people around me who would have supported me in that negativity. Mm. They would have said, "Well, you're completely right to fail us," but my instant reaction was. No problem. This is what we're going to do. I'm not going to make a trailer. I'm going to make a short set within the world. The very same phone call I received the call from the producer. I came back with this is our plan. And then I, I Martin was I, I was actually at the Galway Fla with SLR, which was a BFI back movie. Mm. Um, and I uh, you know I, I I approached Martin McCann who was at the Galway Fla, which is this wonderful festival, and I said, Martin, I've got a role for you. You're going to get a call later in the year. From your agent, um, it's you know it's look it's it's paid it's in a short film but it's going to be awesome you know and I think you're you're going to love it okay and he says well I look forward to it and then he and then he, he gets the, the call later in here so I was already at, at work and I started writing the script immediately because there's no use whatsoever to negative emotions uh, in terms of in terms of what you're talking about um, I hope I haven't been too negative on what I've said about the British film industry here what I'm trying to say is. These are the facts. This is the reality. No, no, your, I think... I think your theories and beliefs about what is true are irrelevant. They're irrelevant. What is, what is relevant? How, how do you deal with the reality and how do you make great work within it? No, no, I think, I think you, you know, you've, you've, been, you've been very honest, but I don't, think, I don't think it comes from the point of view of wanting to 
to knock it down. It's more to say, look, you're a, everyone's an individual filmmaker, and these are the fences you're going to be put up in front of you. So, yeah, so, if, so if you've learnt if you've learnt some things, then I'm I'm happy that you've shared it. <laughs> yeah, and I, I look, and I, I look, I'm a reasonably smart guy. Uh, I do my research, and I <clears throat> have kind of a, an advanced, you know, uh, knowledge of, of economics in many regards. To I think what you know, some some filmmakers may have, you know, in terms of I've studied economics and uh, you know uh, and things like this. So, uh, and and I was uh, and I was very naive about uh, aspects of the industry. Like I was correct about eighty percent, but there was twenty percent I didn't get, and I was relying upon that twenty percent. I mean, the, the public and what the public do and do not buy into yeah. is can be shaped by the way mass marketing works and obviously the fact that my dad knows a Marvel movie, even though he's never watched them and doesn't know your movie, is because the Marvel gets on the 6 o'clock news and obviously your movie didn't. So I'm not pretending that the economies of scale don't work. But ultimately, there are plenty of failed Marvel movies, relatively speaking. So marketing alone doesn't guarantee a success as well. The public are fairly... Are fairly fickle when they want to be. Well, well, one thing I would say is evaluate who's the filmmaker you want to emulate. Um, and I would say my guess is most uh, indie filmmakers would aspire to Christopher Nolan's career, mm. at least notionally, mm. as in make uh, a cracking micro-budget movie, which is like a really great place to start where you're controlling everything. And then make a film with a bit more money uh, with producers... And with, with cast, okay, which is his memento, and it's an astonishing movie. Mm. Uh, and then do like One for the Man, which was his remake of Insomnia. Mm. And then do uh, Batman and uh, reinvent the superhero genre. And it's a fabulous career. But if you aspire to being like Christopher Nolan, uh, think about how Christopher Nolan would deal with these questions. Okay, mm. uh, Memento, for example, uh, didn't get a distributor in the U.S. Okay, when when it, when it was uh, first shown, and mm. it had an amazing like festival reaction. I think it was at Sundance or something. Um, and so, what the co- the production company did was, uh, I presume with Chris's help as well, is they uh, they set up their own distributor and released the movie, and it was a tremendous success. So. Uh, don't look at yourself as a passive participant within the system mm. because if you look at examples of success, you will think, well, what would they do in this scenario? And sometimes the answer will be, well, they would never have made that movie. <laughs> um, in which case, uh, you need to think very hard about why you're making that movie or who your models are or anything mm. like that. Um, or if it's the exception, and then you'll get onto the main track. But um, you know, you need to be your own expert. Uh, for for example, I had to do, as I mentioned with Robert, uh, uh, was, was doing this as well, was uh, this kind of um, you know marketing and distribution presentation mm. uh, to to kind of like a major major studios um, you know uh, staff, and uh, you know it's it's very challenging uh, to some extent coming from you know, an indie background to do something like that. But it was an absolutely essential skill. It wasn't me saying, okay, I'm going to step out of my comfort zone here and do something temporarily. It was, no, this is who I have to be. This is what I have to do. Mm. I have to be able to talk to all the heads of the companies. I have to be able to negotiate. I have to listen to my agent's advice, but, you know, listen past it as well. 
Um, I need to be, you know, my own manager. And if you look at very successful individuals like Tom Cruise and, and people like that as well, like who are effectively one-man companies um, who just run these whole things, that's kind of who you should aspire towards. And if you're in a situation with where other people have control and those people are making mistakes, ultimately there's always been a point at which you gave them control. Mm. Okay. And you might say, well, I had to take this risk and I had to do this or I had to do that. Uh, it's all nonsense, okay? Uh, there was a point at which you gave control. And and actually, if you're a very uh, a high self, highly self-actualized person, you should be able to persuade people towards the outcomes that really matter towards you. Um, and that's kind of one of the skills you just have to learn. You know, when I'll give you a great example. Um, if you ever hear a director saying, nobody's listening to me, nobody's listening to me, they're, not, they're, not, they're making terrible mistakes and they're not doing what I say, okay? Mm. Um, the the actual problem with that director is not that nobody's listening. The problem is he's not prepared to walk away, you know. And and if it's like, well, I've got a contract and I've got a mortgage and I've got a family, and well, you know, my perspective would be, do your kids, you know, want to be raised by a loser? You know, uh, why aren't you, you know, taking control of your life? You need to you need to you know abandon the situation immediately, and you need to sort things out, or you need to rectify. You need to be able to take radical action. In fact, simply being empowered by the fact you might walk away can give you tr- tremendous power. Um, I I've worked with cast who have broken their contract in terms of what they said they would do uh, mm. on screen, and then they haven't done it. Right, and their tremendous power is. Uh, well, are you going to fire me or not? And if you can't fire the people you're working with, they can do what they want. Mm. You know, so uh, the same applies to me. The same applies to me, which is, uh, you know, when I say to a producer, that's not going to happen. That's simply not going to happen. Okay. Uh, what I'm actually saying is, um, you know, uh, I, I'm going to stop that from happening. Okay. Brian Brian Hegeland talks about. He says, if you, if, he said, if development executives are not terrified when you walk in the room, that you're because you're the smartest guy in that. In those meetings, it doesn't mean you have to be. It's not being a bully. It's the fact that you, they, you appear to know your own mind. Then you're not doing your job properly. Was kind of his point. I was listening to yeah. an interview with him, and I thought that was a good point because it's not about saying, shut up and do what I say. It's about saying, look, here's the rationale, and this is why it's important. So what you're saying is mm-hmm. not going to help what I want to achieve. That's that's yeah. an that's an argument, isn't it? That's not a that's not a put down. That's not a slight. That's saying, look, I've got the vision. You're collaborating. My vision is this. That's not the vision. <laughs> um, that's that's true. Um, I, I've had uh, an experience like that, and it, the challenging thing I'm working within is, uh, you know, I'm trying to do, um, you know, on the bigger project I'm working on at the moment. Mm-hmm. It's. Uh, it, it is a collaboration, but you know, one of the things I've learned is if you're doing something on a on a very large budget, um, you need to have a major lead actor. Um, and I'm, I'm talking a major lead actor. I mean, like name some 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 lead actors that come to mind when you say lead actor. Dominic West, Brad Pitt. Okay, okay. Well, you see, Dominic West and Brad Pitt are in very different fields. Brad of Pitt, course, yeah, yeah. Brad, Brad Pitt could finance a movie. Mm. Dominic West. Um, may not be able to find this movie. Vic Dominic's an amazing actor. Um, so uh, the, the scripts that Brad Pitt will say yes to are probably scripts that Dominic West would say yes to, but the scripts that Dominic West would say yes to um, may be scripts that Brad Pitt would say no to. Mm. Okay. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I understand um, the lead table, the idea of a, there being a lead table of... Yeah. Interesting, interesting, what, what but you but, get, but what, the point of bringing it up is your project... 
if you if your financing depends on getting somebody like Brad Pitt, mm. then the script in its decisions and in the way the lead character is depicted need to conform uh, to what they will do. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. Once it's going to be very different, so it stands out from the, the, the thing they've got to read. Mm. But against that, it has to be, they have to be somebody that Harrison Ford could, you know, could play. Okay, it's, yeah. it's interesting what you, I'm just thinking about the, the whole sort of psychological game that goes on. In terms it's, of, it's not a game, actually. No, 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 no. no. Let me finish. It was just more the from, from a yeah. filmmaker's point of view. Psychologically, you start off with a load of pe- with a load of times where people are likely to say no quite quickly. So you you realise that you know every you realise pretty soon if you're not daft that everyone has permission to say no and not many people have the permission to say yes. So when you get into that position where suddenly, like, yeah. where what, like you know where you're saying where actually the best thing to do is for you to say no. You're so conditioned, I imagine, to, to, to hang on in there because somebody somewhere has said yes that you could end up, you know, making yourself have a stomach ulcer, I suppose, <laughs> pursuing well, something that's going nowhere fast as opposed to the idea of you've, you've fought hard to get the yes and then when you start working with, on the wider project, you're the one that then should say no, which I guess psychologically must be quite a, a hard thing to achieve and it's, it's a strength of character thing, isn't it? Going... it, it it's, it's a strength of character thing and uh, on strength of character, I mean, I'd like to say a little bit about that because that's, I think, my, my main kind of point to, uh, to filmmakers now uh, because I, if, if I'm judging whether somebody can make it or not, if they're coming up to have a conversation with me mm. and I'm just having a guess, is this person for real or not, it's usually based on strength of character as opposed to their work or anything like that and the major problem I've had in the past is people haven't necessarily respected or rated me in terms of meeting me in person because they've said I don't know if there's the strength of character here um, and uh, you know, and they haven't gone on to evaluate my work. Whereas, uh, you know, conveying value upon meeting someone is very important mm. because you're you're reflecting what's inside and you're not faking it. Um, and uh, you know, you could be in the unusual circumstance of of actually genuinely being value giving, uh, but people only judge the external side and your external side doesn't communicate that because you're not very congruent. So, I mean, think, thinking about that is very important, but. Um, you know, in terms of in, in terms of attitudes, for everyone, the only thing I can say is there's going to be like a hundred people telling you to make terrible decisions uh, <laughs> from pre-production to production to post-production. Um, and when somebody comes to you with uh, with something that isn't terrible, it's such a relief in terms of okay, that's that's actually quite good. Mm. Um, um, but uh, there's no excuses. There's no excuses when you make your first film and it's average or it's boring or there's obvious things wrong with it, there's no excuses, okay? And ironically, who financiers want to work with is somebody who has the strength to produce good work within a system in which they're under constant kind of kind of pressure. Okay? Mm. So finding that kind of suppleness where you're able to kind of bend, where you're able to move, you're able to negotiate, but at the same time you're able to protect what's important. Yeah. Is, is really key. The Survivalist may not come across as a compromise movie, but I had to make a lot of compromises uh, to do it. And this is a film which has a guy masturbating on screen. Okay. No, no, no. I, I did. I asked a couple of friends who, who'd recommended me to watch it, what, <laughs> and that was a jokey response I got. Ask him, does he think wanking into plants is a survival instinct? <laughs> well, it's it's that you know he's holding his dick to take a piss into his plants yeah. to. Um, to increase the nitrogens, uh, the nitrates in, 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 in the plant. Yeah. In the course of whole handling his penis, he becomes aroused and mm. he beats one off. Um, the only way to depict that scene is to show a penis. 
there is no way to imply what's going on. And <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, is it important that, that he, he masturbates to a picture of a woman? I would say it's among the most important things that happens in the first 15 minutes of the movie. Oh, without doubt, without doubt, yeah. Because yeah. it's, it's very, you know, it's, it's, it's the one non-survival thing he does. Although most people interpret the scene as he... Uh, He's he, he's he's adding some protein, as it were, to the plants, uh, but that's not necessarily. But on, look, on strength of character, I, I I need to I need to come to this right. Uh, yeah. a, mis- a mistake you may make as a younger filmmaker is you may think, you know, I'm not happy, I'm not confident in myself, but when I make my first film, and when my first film is a success, then. I will be happy, and then I will be confident in myself, and I'll be able to do other things. Uh, the, the the truth is this. Um, you won't be uh, any happier, and you won't necessarily be any more confident. Um, you know because that's got to begin right away, mm. and you've got to get on with that. And so, what you need to start doing is you need to start making mistakes. So you need to get through that stage of approaching lots of people for like advice and for you know uh, getting as much information as you can, as much feedback as you can. But then you need to reach a stage where you're not really getting rejected, where you're basically, you know the companies that are interested um, or who would be interested in your work and you know what they like um, and you go to them. So typically, almost always with a first film, you will be in the, you will be in the, the, the kind of the, 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 hat and, the cap and hand phase. Mm. Um, and it's a terrible frame. When you're going to Money Men and you're like, can if you really need their money, um, from their perspective, they're seeing somebody who's selling, whereas the projects they're really interested in, they're buying. They're competing with other people. Of course, so you're yeah. trying to get into a competitive kind of uh, kind of uh, you know scenario. Um, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of approaching companies, you know, you know when you when you've got when you the idea is you need to write something or you need to be able to direct something that several different people will be interested in at the same time. Okay. Um, and and that's really 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 important because then you can choose the right partners because then instead of we've got one person who's put in the money and they turn out to be terrible it's there's four companies I've spoken to filmmakers who've worked with these four companies who finance this this company apparently has the best apparently they give really good notes they're a little more hands on but they give really good notes and they help get it there and I love the filmmaker and they're very strong so something like that so that's really important and, and you know if so how can you get into that stage where you've got that sort of level of confidence but you need to kind of be able to practice this kind of mastery. You need to find a reason why you're doing film that's deeper than simply making movies. And for me, it's making great art. I want to make great art for an audience. Okay, um, that's kind of the mantra I came up with after Survivalist because I, I kind of needed to find a purpose again, and it's been really helpful to me since. I went to the Stanley Kubrick, you know, exhibition, and and I really explored his career, and I thought, what is it that I want? And I'm, you know, I don't want to make a film that nobody's going to see. I even this is like a week after making Survivalist. I was really, like, really. Yeah, I was like, I was, I was having, a, I was having like kind of like my detox tour of Poland. Um, and it was, and there was an exhibition in, in Krakow of, uh, of, of Kubrick, and I went for that. Um, I, I've got some ideas that would have helped me when I was younger, mm-hmm. uh, um, and they're kind of unorthodox. But something, for example, uh, I would strongly suggest is, I, I'm not sure this applies very much to to women, but for men certainly is um, it's super helpful. Um, if you have a lot of confidence in yourself as a person and a really good way to build that up and to develop that is to approach women. And it's kind of a very left field thing to say, but um, if you are a guy at a party and you can't go up to somebody who interests you 
you know, who you find attractive or you like the way they're dressed, if you can't go up to them immediately and begin a conversation, um, the challenges you will have on set, well, you will have 40 people thinking you're doing something insane um, and the pressure of trying to believe their social consensus, that they're correct and that you're, that, that, that you're wrong, is so great. Um, overcoming the social consensus in society about making new connections with people, even if you don't have any connect, uh, you don't have any like family or friends or anyone connecting you, yeah. is a really useful way of doing that. If you can stand on a street corner and you can go up to ten different people and start a conversation, you know, and you can exude such confidence from within that um, they are, uh, you know, that people will just actually be really interested in talking to you because you know, suddenly their days became a lot more eventful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, this, this, is, this, this is rooted in your strength of character theory, isn't it? Yes. I think because this, is, this isn't filmmaking, is it? This is the biggest tool in a filmmaker's box is going to be your ability to communicate, to listen, and to influence people. And if, and, and if you can draw people to you, and that's not necessarily convincing them, but if you can take them with you, yeah. Then, 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 then the things that the things that are going unsaid, the consensus stuff that you're not influencing, should it doesn't always, but should dissipate, shouldn't it? It's like you're essentially being a chief executive, aren't you? In a sense, you're that that kind of yeah. You 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 are the chief executive of mm. the business. You're the empty of the business. You know. Yeah, the, uh, all, all blame falls at your feet because all praise comes to you in a sense. So, but uh, you're responsible for everything, but you yeah. control for nothing. Um, and that's that's kind of a good way of looking at. It. Well, so what I'm kind of suggesting is, if you study seduction, right, uh, 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 it's it's a property that comes across in life, and where true seduction comes from isn't from pretending to be somebody else, isn't from manipulating people, mm. isn't from you know um, you know uh, a series of lines that you say, it's from being somebody who's genuinely attractive and who genuinely has a cause that raises other people's lives to a higher level, okay? And I've suggested a way of doing that, that had I done that when I was younger, I think would have been very helpful because my, my outer game in terms of my ability to make movies, I think I'm a very technically talented filmmaker. Mm. And I've learned all the different components. Um, um, you know, and there's, there's no one's job on set that I can't do to some extent. Um, so, I, you know, I, I know it from the inside out. Uh, and I wish I'd learned how to deal with actors a lot when I, when I was younger in terms of that, that's something people leave very late. Get that down early because it'll help all your work. Um, but my inner game um, is, is kind of the thing I work on the most now, which is that, that sense of it coming from within. And it's really helped me deal with major challenges when you're when you're dealing you know with with top executives in hollywood um how do you survive that because it is no less challenging for me from my background i'm you know came from like a you know small irish town going into something like that when you're expecting it to be you know the most difficult meeting ever or anything like this and it's quite the reverse and it's all about what is true to the material what is true to yourself um, and how can you how can you make that situation work because ultimately, I'm trying to tell you that's where you're going to end up. If you're going to be successful and you're serious about cinema, you're going to have to be dealing, uh, you know, in, in those sort of circles. And the place to get there from is to be really, you know, uh, is, to, is to be free from ego. And to be free from ego, um, you have to really, 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 you know, value yourself and you have to value what you have to offer. So when somebody says, could you change the whole story? Like, I just handed in a draft and something, and I'm going to have to completely rewrite the script. Mm. Uh, but I'm the person suggesting completely rewriting it. 
as in everybody else in the room was saying not that far they were saying okay here's changes we can make but i said in order to do what we all want i think i need to change it completely and here's why and everyone was in agreement when i presented that mm. okay even though that's a lot more work for me and something like this because we're, we're not writing a script we're making a movie uh, i'm able to see th stuff from the outside uh, a lot more uh, a lot more clearly um, because I'm not trying to justify myself. I'm not looking for validation. I'm not defensive of what I've produced. And therefore, when you've got that maximum amount of flexibility, that's when you can succeed in, in a big system. Mm. It's because you're able to say, um, okay, well, this is the thing that's really important to me about this project. It needs to be in it, but everything else I can change. Uh, and you're going to change it according to your taste, you know? Uh, but then it's a lot easier. Uh, but, but also, just reading between the lines, then, and what you're saying is that 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 you're also saying that don't choose the path of least resistance; choose the right path. So, the path choose of least resistance would have been to do pick up the notes and tweak your script according to what the consensus on the table, as opposed to if your if your aim, as you said earlier, is to make good art through film, then you're hearing this feedback and you're going. Right to make this work, I'm going to have to start again. So you're, it's taking, it's, it's harder to do that, but you're you're showing and keeping an element of control in a fairly uncontrolled environment, which is rewrite a script. Um, well, it's yeah. I mean, I mean, does, does that make? Did, did I? I think I had a, a side thought when you said that, which is don't choose the path of least resistance. Choose the path of most resistance. Yeah, that can't, same, okay. yeah same difference. Because, yeah. because as Michelangelo said, uh, apparently, if, um, you, know, the, 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 you know, the worst thing that can happen is not that you aim too high and that you miss. The worst thing that can happen is that you aim too low and you hit it. <laughs> And it's really true because unless, if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough because you're not discovering new things and you're not mastering new things. So a great thing I would say is, what are the things in your life that you're most uncomfortable doing? You know, um, that, you know, deeply internally uh, you really don't want to do. That's why I like giving the example of, of approaching strangers. No, you know? no, I mean, you're, what you're talking about. I mean, my, my palms break out into a sweat. <laughs> well, no, no, no. Talking about that sort of stuff, but actually, that's brilliant because that's a tool for changing yourself. You well, know? your advi your advice is 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 just forget filmmaking now. Is career development one hundred and one, which is yeah. if you're not yeah, feeling yeah. uncomfortable going into a situation, then you will not learn. If you're always comfortable every day, then essentially you're taking something off a conveyor belt and putting it on a on a table, and you're taking it off a conveyor belt, and that could be any situation. That could be just putting figures on a spreadsheet. Could be anything. But the minute you say I'm going to give a presentation to a group of people. I'm going to go and net, I'm going to go to an, an event and find ten new contacts. Then suddenly those targets become and those activities become something you've got. You've not got control of, but you've got to. Your um, pursuit of it is what will get the outcome. And you might fail to get ten contacts because you're in an event where nobody knows you, and you maybe went to the wrong school or you got the wrong accent or whatever. But like your Michelangelo thing is, if you don't try. Then how can you yeah. learn what how to get it right? You know, it's sort of, and I think these are very these are very just they're, they're universal truths, aren't they? That as for, um, and it's weird how they get overlooked in in art so much because we kind of obsess with the creative side of it. And there's a brilliant book by Stephen Pressfield, who's a um, who's yeah. a screenwriter called The War on Art, and he talks yeah. a lot about the compulsion to do stuff, the compulsion to want to do stuff is always going to overpower ability to do stuff. 
Yeah, oh, that's very good. Because I've been listening to Outsider Music recently. Okay. Um, there's a great album you can find on streaming services called Music in the Key of Z. Z-, Z- Oh yeah, yeah, so- yeah, yeah, songs yeah. in the key of Z, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's an incredible compilation. And mm. it's these people with this desperate urge to create, even though nobody's interested in listening. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know, but but yeah, and you have to look at yourself. Which is, am I compelled mm. to make movies, and does it ex- over exceed my talent? Um, and the, the the honest answer is, uh, unfortunately, there's no way of telling. <laughs> There's no way of telling. Isn't, isn't that cruel? Isn't that cruel? But you know, but what what I would say is that uh, I, I think there's a way of rationalising everything, and there's a way of uh, you know, uh, Florence Jenkins, the famous failed opera singer. She she did find her own mm. niche, uh, but you know, she would have been perhaps more successful had she you know. But she would do, she would sell out she would sell out shows mm. uh, doing what she did. But um, it's really important to think about that because uh, you know. We've been told a lie in Western society, which is you can be what you want, and you can do what you want, and uh, that you can have everything you know you, you want, provided you do X, Y, Z. Mm. I'll give you a great lie. It's like the way universities advertise their courses. You know, you will see like a poster of a guy in like a mixing studio wearing headphones, <laughs> and then it will be like, "Do you want to be a music mixer? Do this course, and you will be a music mixer." And it's like about like one out of a hundred people who do the course will be. And it's absolute lies. Um, we're in a society where they can legally do that. Oh, no, know? no, look, and I mean, I remember sat in my first ever screenwriting class and, and it was just like a, an yeah. evening, it wasn't even a serious course, it was just an evening thing. And it was sort of 50 odd people in the room. Yeah. Now, that's just one weekly, five week course, you know, to introduce you to screenwriting, as it were. And I, just finished a master's in mass communication, so I'd, I'd actually drawn on the film industry distribution model and produ- volume of production in countries. And I, so I knew the kind of numbers, and even if you thought about Bollywood, you were like going, there isn't the market for 50 of us to enter it, never mind the next five weeks of 50 people that do this course. <laughs> and so it isn't about... The, 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 the dream might be what motivates... that can get you excited, but actually individual compulsion will always will always drive you further, I think. Well, it's why I, um, you know, you have to get to your kind of, I think there needs to be a higher cause rather than the biological instinct to create. Mm. Because because, um, you're going to negatively, you're going to go in circles in your head about what you're doing and, and what you're doing enough. I mean, I worked in an office for seven years. Robert, I worked in a number of offices for seven years, mainly the BBC for five. Mm. Uh, and uh, I didn't have that higher cause for why I should break out. Eventually it was, I cannot go on living my life um, not being, um, not doing filmmaking for a living. So that was kind of the basis. It was, it was just a, a, I'm very unhappy in what I'm doing and I really want to make movies and I'm not making enough progress. I need to make progress very rapidly. So what I did was I, I challenged myself in different ways. I did a screenwriting course and mm-hmm. I, I'd been kind of like Mr. Indie. I'm not going to listen to courses and reading books. You only learn stuff through doing and all this. Uh, but I did the course and what was more useful than doing the course was making the decision to do the course. Of course, Because yeah. su- it's such an open framework in my mind that I was mm-hmm. challenging everything. And I read Robert McKee's story you know, uh, and I was like, you know what, this has got so much good stuff in it. But I challenged the text. Then I went back and I said, well, this stuff I agree with and this stuff I don't. Um, and, uh, you know, getting into that framework is like, is like, is like so important because, um, 
you know, it's a very simple way to explain it is this. Look at where your life is right now, right at this moment, and look around. How long has it been that way? Um, you know, is it changing? Is it changing fast enough? Um, and if the answer to those questions is you're not happy or it's not changing fast enough uh, or it hasn't changed, uh, then if you keep believing the same things you believe, it's, it's even different to doing. If you keep believing the same things you believe, it's going to remain the same way. So you've got to, you've, you've, and, and if, you, if you believe, for example, it's possible to be a lot more successful in what you're doing, uh, then you'll immediately be able to find the roots to do it. Because I can give you a thousand ways in which you're not going to get your film made. Okay, I'll give you all the reasons why your film isn't going to get made, right? Um, but uh, the alternate way of looking at it is, here's the thousand ways in which my film is going to get made. Here are the thousand different routes in which... Mm. In, in, in which they will, in which they will work, and simply having a different belief that it will or it won't uh, will uh, affect whether it gets made or not. Um, people think that it's 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 gatekeepers or guardians or evil companies or market conditions or audiences who don't care. They think there's all these reasons kind of stopping them uh, um, doing uh, that kind of thing. Whereas 95% of the reason I did that for seven years was internal okay and the fact that i found the internal resources to come out of that kind of cave and then emerge and and achieve some degree of success and hopefully more success um is good uh but i don't think it was necessary i don't think it was necessary and had i been willing to challenge my belief system earlier i would have i would have been making films earlier i would have done things like i would have found a mentor Mm. You know, because a mentor would be able to tell these things to me. Like this is this is like really basic stuff. No, no, stuff. no, no, no. But, but you, you know? you, basic stuff is, is the reason it needs pointed out is because often the thing that's staring in the face gets overlooked. Yeah, and and you know it's and and also you'll end up surrounded by negative people, and you you'll end up you know with people who are agreeing that things can't be changed and things like this, and you just do not have time in your life because look, I, I've got plenty of negative thinking. You know that I can be doing by myself. Okay. Well, that's that. That's the, that is the the crux of the War on Art book. Stephen Pressfield is that these first two chapters are basically you're going to your friends are going to change. You need to get rid of the people that are telling you you can, and it doesn't mean you yeah. kill them. Obviously, it means that you're going to spend less time with them because obviously, if, if 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 one of those people is your father, then you're not you can't completely disassociate yourself from your father. Not that if my dad ever heard this podcast, I'm saying my dad's negative because he's not. But um, if that is, then you, you will spend less time with him because what you need to do to propel yourself is be, like you say, changing belief systems by trying new things, failing, failing then to failing. succeed. Failing. And then, yeah. and then failing without that, judgment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, because if, if, um, if Billy Wilder can win a load of Academy Awards... And I think he's won five at this point in interviews reading, and he's still saying, I have to smuggle in the art like it's contraband, then you, you begin to realise that nobody has it easy. Nobody gets, gets what they want. Everybody is kicking against something. But they've learned through their mistakes and through their successes how they can make it work best for them. Um, and there's no, there's no meritocracy in this either. So, you know, you don't, you don't get what you deserve sometimes. Um, exactly, and it's uh, you know nobody nobody owes you anything, and so but you can control the kind of the the average of your life. Something I've been learning about recently is the idea of homeostasis in our lives, which is we are the average of our the five people we spend the most time time with. We are the average. I've never heard that before. We are the average of the 
you know, the films we watch the most, the TV we watch the most, the books we read the most, the way we spend our time. And our brains are very plastic. And so, uh, you know, when you, when you increase uh, the kind of the level uh, consistently enough, then your brain, you know, adapts more. I know that for a fact, because when I was working in an office, I was very low, low operating. Mm. Okay. And whereas now I'm regarded as being a smart person by smart people um, in film circles, mm. which is really, which is like really cool. It's just, it's just it's just a value judgment. I don't necessarily agree with it, but to come across as that, whereas previously I was an accounts clerk, yeah. who uh, you know people wouldn't look twice at in an elevator, uh, is is cool. Um, uh, you know, so that's that's really interesting in terms of thinking about. Um, about uh, you know in, in terms in terms of change and one of the challenges of if you're not doing this professionally and you're not engaged with it every day or even if you're like you've earned enough money to be a freelancer but you're you're you're, you're stuck on your own uh, and you're not having very much interaction with people you, you can you know it will affect your output here's here's, great, here's two great examples you can start a uh, podcast for starters that's what I did <laughs> uh, well you could, you, you you couldn't do it I mean I'm, I'm thinking of ways in which I can I can assist people through through some of the kind of the dark, the dark phases that are inevitable in what you're doing cool um, you know and, and and the general thing of this I would say is look pain is really good if you're not feeling pain if you're feeling numb that's a problem but when you're feeling pain because you've been forcing yourself into different things what you need to be doing is you need to be feeling greater and greater and greater pain over more and more and more time and developing your capacity to deal with it, okay? Because trust me, getting humiliated in front of 300 people, it feels worse than getting humiliated in front of two people, okay? So you're going into arenas where this sort of stuff can happen, so you need to be able to develop your, your, your threshold a lot, a lot higher so that you don't feel it. And then when, you're de- then when you're dealing with stuff that was downstream previously, that would have been very difficult, it's very easy. So it's only through learning how to push much higher, harder weights than you can usually push. Mm. That you're able to lift the, the earlier ones with ease. Okay, yeah. so and, and so what I'm talking about is high level crises that you have to deal with. But the the, the kind of the, the the kind of the big thing is is is, is thinking about um, it, it, the great example I give is like John Lennon. John Lennon, fabulously talented, uh, uh, but it took him a long time after he left the Beatles because he was spent, he wasn't hanging around people who were as talented as Paul McCartney. Uh, his quality of his work went down, and you, you can, you, we can argue about this, but there was a dip uh, after a while, and then he got back into form. And like Double Fantasy is a great album, you know, and he had something to prove, and he had to find that in the wilderness. But uh, so many people, they make something great, and then they go off, and they're very isolated for a very long time, and they're not surrounded by creative, brilliant, engaging people. One of the reasons the studio system was so successful, or Motown was so successful turning out hit after hit after hit, was you had an incredibly talented group of people hanging around each other in close proximity, either in the office or on the lot, uh, or in the studio, or in social circles, right? And all inspiring and raising each other's level up and up and up and up and up and up. Um, whereas when they were separated, uh, you know, if nothing else, the speed of their output dramatically decreased. Well, yeah, no, that reminds me of um, of Michael Arndt talking about Toy Story 3. He, he was brought on to be interviewed about writing that screenplay, and one of the first things he says is, I couldn't write this screenplay. <laughs> Even though it's said by Michael Arn, he talks yeah. about the twenty-story consultants that he worked with. At, I'm trying to remember—is it, is it Pixar? Dream to man, is it? Whichever, whatever big animation studio it is. It was Pixar, know, yeah. Pixar, yeah. So he he had twenty-story consultants who would work with him, developing the screenplay, and all of them wanted his screenplay, as it were, to be a success. So he had a hell of a lot of 
creative energy and obviously experts in terms of their field who were driven towards success of that organisation. So therefore, they wanted him to be a success. So therefore, he was getting energy from them. And he's even talked about like even an example where a fire alarm went off and just standing outside the lot while on a fire exercise and talking to someone there and breaking a story problem because he's in that environment. Obviously, if you sat in your office on your own in Leighton, like I am, I'm not going to bump into an executive at Pixar, am I? <laughs> well, well two, two, two different things about that. One is that uh, the script I'm writing at the minute, I'm in like daily contact with my producer, and I've never worked this way before. I've always been working in a very isolated fashion. Wow, that must be weird. Um, and you know, talking through story challenges and, and meeting up, and, and I, I've spent hours just talking with them and coming up with things. And uh, it, it's not even that they're necessarily generating ideas for me. Hmm. It's that I have ideas when I'm forced to explain what I'm thinking or when I'm being challenged on it, and it's just so much more rapid. It's like sticking things in a microwave. You will have the same thoughts, but you'll have them much more rapidly when you're hanging around something really smart and challenging. Uh, but what I would say is, okay, you're, you're in Leighton, which... Yeah. Um, it's kind of funny, actually. I'm staying um, uh, on Black Horse Lane at the minute. Uh, are, we, are, we are we that near? We are that near. <laughs> uh, the, well, not, not the minute. I'm, I'm, in, an, I'm in Ireland. I'm in the minute. Okay, sorry, sorry. sorry. Uh, but when I'm up there, I, I love Leighton, obviously. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, a great, it's a great area. But what you do have control over is, you know, who you contact, who you reach out to, things you go to, talks you go to, uh, your consumption, uh, people you want to bring into your life insofar as you can. Um, so, you know, for example, you know, um, you can go to a, you know, a talk with Steven Spielberg, but it's unlikely, you know, Steven Spielberg will be part of your social circle. But who you might see at the Steven Spielberg talk is somebody who's maybe, uh, uh, who someone you regard as being like a level above yourself, mm. um, whom you can have like a satisfying relationship with, and then you can engage with, and uh, you know, and so on. Those are the things we can control. Uh, we, look, we can't we can't control uh, not working on Pixar on a lot, uh, but if that's what you wanted to do, uh, you could do it. Um, oh yeah, no, I, I just thought it was a wonderful. I thought it was a good concession that that the involvement of others is is going to contribute to your success. Your success. From my client's point of view, isn't just about him. Is what I, I read that as being. Um, I mean, I'll t uh, there's a lot of things to say about that. But one is obviously filmmaking by nature is a team exercise. Mm. Even if you write a novel, you're going to have an editor. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, but uh, it is possible to write a novel with minimal revisions. If you want complete control, you should write novels. Um, is the, is the, is the, my straightest way of saying it. You can even self-publish now and with success. With success. Uh, you know, so, so that, that, you know, when you're working with filmmakers, it's instantly collaborative. By nature, you can't act in front of the camera and behind <laughs> and, and do all of the, and operate the camera. Of course, yeah, yeah. So, you know, like, like uh, some directors actually operate the camera themselves mm. uh, and some directors act, but no directors self operate and act unless they're doing a selfie movie. Which I think is like a really clever idea. I should write that down. Selfie movie. I've, uh, I've written it down just as you did it. <laughs> okay, terrible. Anyway, uh, we're a race against time now. The most, you know, and how much would it cost? It would cost uh, 90 minutes of charge on your phone. Anyway, the, the thing I'm saying is uh, that that's really kind of interesting about uh, you know uh, you know about this is uh, one of the reasons he's saying that as well is we are very egotistical and we're constantly. Uh, trying to close ourselves off from other people, as in, you know, it's like collaboration is like a, a collaboration is like an open wound, mm. which we keep exchanging each other's diseases. 
Okay, and then when we're not around each other very often, the kind of the wound kind of closes up. Okay, and our immune system, um, our immune system, uh, uh, get, get, you know, which rejects these kind of incoming diseases, uh, you know, gets back in shape, gets back in form, and so uh, you know we're more we're able to reject the diseases that are coming in better. And the diseases in this instance I'm talking about is in a positive way. It's it's you know memetics. It's memes. It's great ideas. It's what is true in the world. Right uh, by. Uh, we have to constantly work to reinforce the idea that we need to collaborate. Uh, the best way I would say this is if I'm working with a studio in the U.S., it's much easier for me to work successfully with them if I believe it's a deep collaboration uh, than it is for me to believe I'm a lone individual in the system trying to protect my idea. Okay? Mm. So I genuinely believe it's the former. I'm working with an excellent company. They've introduced me to an amazing producer, um, and we're having a great time. We're having a great time doing it. But it's because I genuinely believe that. Now, I can guarantee you right now, uh, to this, some of these people listening to this podcast, they'll be like, he's drunk the Kool-Aid. You know? <laughs> this sounds like some Tom Cruise Scientology and stuff like this. And all I say is uh, I was you as well, okay? And I, was, I, I had that same outlook and I had that same mindset, right? But the distinction between you and I is you know I'm getting on business class flights to Los Angeles. I'm meeting screenwriters uh, who I fucking I've dreamed of meeting since I was a kid. I'm meeting actors I've always wanted to work with, and I'm making material that I'm the most happy with I've ever been in my life. Okay, so let's say for the sake of argument, right? It's all a lie and it's not reality. Okay, I'll put it this way: I'm a lot happier living in this reality where I'm happy with my work. And I'm happy with where I'm going. I'm happy with my direction. I'm happy with the things I'm achieving. I'm a lot happier than being, than tearing open a packet of cheese and onion crisps in a Weberspoons pub over a pint, uh, complaining about uh, some filmmaker who's made something at the cinema that I think is a bit too mainstream. Okay, because it's so hard to make anything that's good, anything that's good at all within this system, anything that's good at all, uh, that it's the people that go into battle that deserve our respect. Not the people who sit on the sidelines and say and say wars for fools. Well, look, on that on that high note, I'm going to draw us to a conclusion. Um, I'll draw us to an end. I thank you very much for your time, Stephen. It's been uh, it's been really really interesting and illuminating. Um, hopefully, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully you've enjoyed yeah. giving given us this, giving us your thoughts and experiences. Um, and um, I suppose I should add. Uh, survivalist people can get on iTunes and it's is it is it DVD and Blu-ray that it's available? Uh, it's DVD and Blu-ray. Go to survivalistfilm.com um, and you can check it out. My recommendation, if you've got a good sound system, is the Blu-ray. If you don't have a good sound system, get the DVD. They have two completely different sound mixes. Uh, okay. The Blu-ray is the cinema sound mix, and also a nice little treat is the film is mixed in mono, uh, so almost all the movie is the center channel only. So if you want to see how that sounds, uh, do check out uh, the optical disc versions because that's the only way to get them. Okay. All right. Well, thank you very much. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You did something for the first. 